What's up, bro? Hey, what's going on? Yeah, so, I mean, we've known each other a long time, yeah? Your whole life. I've known you longer, yeah, than... Uh, than I've known you. <laughs> I guess <laughs> I'm older. And I've been a true crime fan for a long time. Yes. We had a dad that read a lot of detective novels. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dad read some, it was just garbage, but it was detective stuff. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. He was into it. And he got me hooked on it. And so I also read a lot of garbage detective stuff. It's terrible, but it's, but it's, it's entertaining. People can't get enough of it. You know, I thought true crime was pretty cool. Like a lot of people, I think I started with the serial killers, Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And it's kind of a fascination that you can't explain most of the time. But I remember... You went to law school. You became a public defender. When was that? Uh, two, I started taking cases in 2005. 2005. Yeah. So you became a public defender. And I had a lot of questions. And I think they're questions that a lot of people have. How can you defend someone against sex crimes? How can you put a killer back on the streets? Yeah. And then, of course, the, the big question, the doozy, huh. <laughs> how do you sleep at night? Yeah, all good questions. All good questions. And over the years, I've asked you a lot of these questions, and your answers really gave me a new perspective on defense attorneys and the service they provide and the criminal justice system in general. And then I, I kind of found over the years that I'd hear other people ask those questions, and I started to have some of the answers. Okay. from my conversations with you and people seem to really appreciate having a better understanding and they seem to find uh, my insights helpful and informative and all of my insights came directly from you. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and I generally find that they mostly focus on the crime itself, often a conviction. uh, And every now and then, there'll be one where somebody was wrongfully accused and found not guilty and everybody get, Oh, the defense did so great on this case, which is awesome, but they never ever appreciate what the defense does except for those situations. That's a broad generalization. generalization. Oh, that's great. No, but it's true. It's true. I mean, it's uh, you, the, you, you see those when you look at the different documentaries that are out there, you'll see exactly what you're talking about. You know, get oh after the killer, get the terrible bad guy because, you know, there's there's the night stalker, Richard Ramirez, for example. There's one of him on Netflix. And of course, everybody wants him in jail. Nobody wants a bad guy out on the street. And then, like you were saying, with um, finding these people not guilty after they've been in prison forever because of either DNA or some amazing legal work and everybody thinks that's great but that is just like a just a small percentage of what these defense attorneys deal with i mean they're 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 getting the results on on these cases let's say there's a case where one goes to trial and they win that trial is the 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 top of a pile of trials and that went on beforehand that were terrible yeah we do get sucked into some of the bigger headline grabbing cases, but it's something you do every day. And every person 
no matter what they're accused of, has access to a lawyer and somebody is there guiding them through the process. And yeah, nobody's paying any attention. Imagine not having an attorney and trying to do some of this stuff. I mean, so, some of, so much of it sounds easy, you know, but just... Mm, well, we're going to talk well, about that you know, today. That's very yeah. convenient. Yeah. So I, I listened, like I said, I listened to a lot of podcasts and I started looking for podcasts that focused on criminal defense. And I really found that there wasn't a lot out there and I did find a few, but they weren't really what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. I found one where there's a guy who interviews a lot of famous lawyers and they really just talk about their whole experience, but they don't address any of these questions. And so I just, I just kind of started thinking, well, sometimes if you can't find what you're looking for, you have to create it. So I decided I wanted to do a podcast, kind of a true crime podcast about true, you know, real life criminal trials, but more focused on the defense. And I, I would say I'm not, it's not like I'm a defense apologist. That's not really my purpose. My purpose is more to answer some of those questions that I think so many people have, which is how do they do this? And how do they feel about doing this? And how does, how do one of these big famous lawyers feel when they stand up in court? How does Jose Baez feel when he stands up in court to defend Casey Anthony? I think a lot of people are really curious about how that actually works. And can you do it if you think they're guilty? And, you know, can you say something you don't think is true? And I just think a lot of people have these questions. I have them still. And you yeah. have so much insight and experience into how it actually well, those works. Are huge questions. You can help us all yeah, understand. I mean, they, they, they come up all the time. And I have clients ask me a question like, um, do you believe me? And it doesn't matter. You just say, generally speaking, it doesn't matter if the guy did it or not. It's like, I try not to get too involved in all that because I want to mm-hmm. be able to be there 110% for everybody. But there are questions that I answer like that all the time that, you know, like, you know, how do you do it? You know, how do you sleep at night, et cetera? And yeah, the, do, you know, do you believe me that I didn't do it? Reminds me of the fugitive when Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, and they're in the big metal pipe yeah. thing yeah. that that shoots the water yeah. out over the dam. And he says, "I didn't kill my yeah. wife." And Tommy Lee Jones says, "I don't care." You know, yeah, it's like it's my job to do this. I, it is not my job to think about whether or not. I believe you, I have a job to do. So you asked a great question. How does anybody do this without a lawyer? So I wanted to talk about one of the landmark cases in that respect, Gideon versus Wainwright. It is a case that established the right to have counsel and get your thoughts uh, throughout. Well, what I what I think is interesting straight away straight away is well, first of all, I forget what year is getting. I forget it was nineteen sixty one. Sixty one, right? Okay, is that um, 
when I realized that we didn't have the right to that, we sort of did, right? It was like you had to be charged with either a federal crime or it had to be like murder. Um, but but now, you, you, if you, if in Florida anyway, if you're looking at jail time, then you get an intern. So yep. if it's a misdemeanor, you get one. And I think Gideon was charged with the misdemeanor. Um, you're about to find out. To me, I think you need to have an attorney. Why not? I mean, listen, the state, the, the government, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm just not. But, you know, history is just sort of like a kaleidoscope of just, well, you know, you look at the way things happen and it's just the powerful just keep getting more powerful and just kind of taking over and everything just kind of caves in and just keeps moving on. And all the different power structures just get as powerful as they can possibly be. And we will ultimately lose our rights if we don't have them being actively challenged or challenged. Yeah. I was trying to yeah. a grammatically powerful way to say that, but you, know, mm-hmm. you keep it in the forefront. You keep fighting for the rights that you have or want or want to keep. You have, you have to keep doing it or otherwise you're going to lose them and they're just going to end up fading away. And that's one place where defense attorneys are very important is all the case law that protects your fourth amendment rights to against search and seizure, for example, all come from defending somebody who was caught with something illegal. Um, okay. So I'm going to walk, I'm going to start walking through Gideon and we'll see what comes up. Do it. The story takes place in Panama city, Florida in the summer of 1961, early in the morning of June 3rd, Clarence Earl Gideon was minding his own business in a neighborhood bar when the police came in and arrested him for breaking and entering with intent to commit petty larceny. Gideon would soon learn that an eyewitness placed him at the scene of a crime earlier that morning. Although Gideon maintained his innocence, it did not look good. He was a 50-year-old drifter who had been in and out of prison since his teenage years for robbery, burglary, larceny, and stealing government property. So essentially, there was a burglary, and an eyewitness said, Gideon did it. And everybody said, well, I would believe that. (laughs) Sounds about right. (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah. And so he's arrested. Yeah. I love how this is Florida. So Gideon's just. Yeah. And it's, he's he's the, is he the original Florida man? This is him. Getting (laughs) it started. Yeah. He's 50. You know, he's just kind of like, he drinks a lot. Wasn't it like he was breaking into a place to, to, it was. To commit a misdemeanor, but since he was breaking into a pool hall, for some reason that bastardized it into a felony somehow. Now I don't know. I we shall he, find out, but I'm not. I'm not totally sure about. I, th- I think that he was felony charge, and oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, he got sentenced to five years in prison. He did. Yes. Yeah. So yes. this was a serious case. It's not Spoiler like alert. So yeah, I guess I did. I just <laughs> there. I was like, yeah. All right. So two months after his arrest, on August 4th, 1961, Gideon stood trial at a Florida circuit court. Two months. The prosecutor, William E. Harris, represented the state. And unable to afford a lawyer, Clarence Gideon sat alone at the defense table. And I have to read this transcript because I love it. Mm-hmm. Judge, the next, the next case on the docket is the case of the state of Florida plaintiff versus Clarence Earl Gideon defendant. What says the state? Are you ready to go to trial in this case? Harris, the state is ready, Your Honor. Judge, what says the defendant? Are you ready to go to trial? Gideon, I am not ready, Your Honor. Judge, 
Did you plead not guilty to this charge by reason of insanity? Gideon, no, sir. Judge, why aren't you ready? Gideon, I have no counsel. Judge, why do you not have counsel? Did you not know that your case was set for trial today? Gideon, yes, sir, I knew that it was set for trial today. Judge, why then did you not secure counsel and be prepared to go to trial? Gideon, your honor, I request this court to appoint counsel to represent me in this trial. All right, and then the judge replies, Mr. Gideon, I am sorry, but I cannot appoint counsel to represent you in this case. Under the laws of the state of Florida, the only time the court can appoint counsel to represent a defendant is when that person is charged with a capital, defense, capital offense. I am sorry, but I will have to deny your request to appoint counsel to defend you in this case. Yeah, I mean, you know, and they'll just say that's the law, sir. So, boom, that's the way it is. But I'm gonna- And they're not wrong, right? I, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't read the books from back then, but my understanding is that is exactly right. Now, what, what's yeah. interesting is there had been a string of cases that you know, this had been going on for decades. And in the Supreme Court, there's a whole line of cases leading up to this. So this is what I love. So Gideon has to has to do this on his own, including selecting a jury. Yeah. So the prosecution, you know, it's going to be a six 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 person jury. Of course, back then it's six white men. So uh, the judge says it, it, the prosecution says they're OK with the journey jury and they hand it over to Gideon. And the judge says, now, Mr. Gideon, look these six gentlemen over. And if you don't want them to sit as a jury to try your case, just point out the one or more, all six of them if you want to. And the court will exclude them and we will call another or some others to try your case. You don't have to have a reason, just look them over. And if you don't like their looks, that's all it takes to get them excused. Just point out any one, two, three, four, five, or all six of them if you want to, and the court will excuse them. And of course, this poor indigent man is like, they're fine. I'll take um, they're nice. They're wearing suits. <laughs> oh wow! I have seen. This seems like an apropos point to say that I have seen what we call pro se clients, clients mm -hmm. themselves, um, and I've heard tell of greatness in such regard but that's like one in like a million cases especially considering these days you have a right to an attorney so yeah. if you choose to represent yourself you're yeah i don't even know you're a fool you're you're pretty much a fool yeah i, I really think that even like the the one there's one guy that i heard of that, and i didn't see it but everybody was like yeah, this guy did a great job a bang up job and I don't know how he did it, but somehow he did it. You probably are not going to ever be better off doing it yourself. And these are people that, that have the opportunity to have an attorney. So exactly. Back to people who are there and they don't have the right to have one. Like that's freaky and scary. They have no other choice. God bless them. You know? um, so the uh, there's a book about the Gideon case called Gideon's Trumpet. Of course, I didn't read it. But there's a movie. Fortunately, there's a movie. 
<laughs> starring Henry Fonda. And it was really good. It was really, really good. I've heard it was very good. I it is absolutely worth watching. I, I got to be honest, though. I did, I did not read the book either. I should. It's, clearly, it's one of those I need to put on my short list. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you're going to know. After this podcast, you're going to know everything you need to know about Yay. the video case. All right. So the trial begins. And the state calls two witnesses. The first witness they call is Ira Strickland, who ran the pool hall that was that was burglarized. And he testified that someone had broken a window in the rear of the building, gained entry, and stolen some beer, wine, and money from the cigarette machine and jukebox. Uh, and Gideon tried to cross-examine him. He asked him about the dimensions of the building he asked him to describe the broken window. He asked him whether he asked the bar manager if he ever left the bar unlocked. The bar manager said, yeah, I do, but never overnight. And the crime occurred overnight. Uh, and the, the bar manager didn't know a lot of detail about how much stock was taken or how much change was taken from the machines. And Gideon really tried to draw attention to that. He 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 really was saying to the guy, what do you mean you don't know? You're telling the court and jury that these things were taken, but you can't tell us what was taken. And I, I think for a 50-year-old guy that allegedly had an eighth grade education, that was really sharp. Like he had really good instincts. The second witness was Henry Cook. So he's just a local young guy. And basically the the police officer who's out patrolling notices that the bar was broken into and oh look henry cook is right there and so he talks Don't to him you. and Hen no henry's like gideon did it <laughs> so yeah he testified that at 5 30 in the morning he saw gideon inside he saw him by the cig cigarette machine he saw gideon come out the back door walk to a payphone and call a cab and he said that Gideon's pockets were bulging and he had a bottle of wine in his hand. Um, on cross-examination, Gideon tried to ask him if he had ever been committed, convicted of a crime. So apparently this guy, his name was Henry Cook. Apparently he was, you know, not a model citizen. Right. And Gideon kind of tried to, to call that out, but it didn't, it really didn't go over too well. It didn't have the punch that he was looking for. But without any legal training, it, I, I felt like he did as good a job he could yeah, cross-examining. Yeah, I've seen you remember that. Too. Yeah, he did all right. So the state rests, and it's Gideon's turn now to try to find reasonable doubt. And he calls eight witnesses. Okay. <laughs> he starts by calling the patrolman who noticed the break-in. And the patrolman really just testifies I saw the door open, I saw the damaged window, and I found Henry Cook, and Henry Cook told me Gideon did it. Okay. And then he calls the deputy sheriff, who knows nothing. There was a broken window, and nobody saw who broke it. Uh, then he calls the cab driver, and the cab driver testifies that he did not see Gideon with any wine, that he did not have a bag, he had empty hands, and he did not seem intoxicated. That's great. That's great, right? It's a golden witness right there. Golden witness. And then he calls this lady, Irene, who's a neighbor, 
And she testifies that she did see Gideon come through the back alley, which runs along the back of the pool hall, but that that was typical, that that that's where people often would, you know, she'd often see people walking through there. So that didn't stand out to her as being unusual. She also testified that Henry Cook could not have seen Gideon come out the back door of the pool hall from where he was standing. And then he called another guy who was not useful and another guy who was not useful. A bunch of them just repeated what we'd already heard about the broken window. Another one who, so a lot of these witnesses that just were very repetitive talked about the fact that they didn't know who broke the window. But again, I think he's making a good point that nobody knew that he had broken the window. Nobody could say that it was him. Except this one clown. And then the last witness that he called was Velva Estelle Morris, his landlady. And Velva owned the hotel across the street. They called it a hotel, but I feel like it's one of those hotels where people can kind of live there, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Velva testified that it was not unusual for Gideon to use the payphone at the corner if it was early in the morning because he was respectful and people in the hotel might be asleep. Because back in the day, there was a phone kind of more centrally located in the hotel. Um, She also testified that she had never seen him drunk. So these all seem like pretty good for him. And I'm remarkably impressed (laughs) for this guy running his uh, his own campaign here. So they did closing statements. Gideon gave an 11 minute closing argument where he maintained his innocence. And then Harris gave a nine minute closing argument for the state. I have no idea how long deliberations lasted, but the verdict came back guilty. During sentencing, it came out that Gideon had been in prison four times before for burglary, robbery, possession of government property. Uh, And so the judge gave him the maximum allowed sentence of five years in prison. Yeah, so they hammered him, yeah. So I have a couple questions for you. One, how did he do? Uh, it sounds like he did pretty pretty good for uh, yeah calling witnesses for sure for, for an old drunk right yeah no doubt no he did he did an excellent job and then I also thought it was interesting that the prior convictions were not mentioned during the trial I feel like I would usually hear the prosecution be like this is a repeat offender that would come up if he testified. Mm. he testifies then his credibility becomes an issue and then part of that is determined on whether or not they committed crimes of moral turpitude one of which being thefts and so that would have come up so 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 he didn't testify then of all those eight witnesses he wasn't one of them no he did not take the stand yeah so his priors wouldn't be an issue all right that's so interesting What's that? He did very, very well. I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm impressed. That, with that one witness that they didn't find reasonable down. Seems reasonable. I mean, even because the one guy, uh, the, the, I forget his name, who was standing outside. Henry Cook. Yeah, he's probably the guy who did it, you know. There's a lot of speculation that he was the lookout for a group of people that actually did the break-in. You know what's interesting and what's kind of what's kind of funny and brings it back to your main point. The point is that he needed an attorney. Yeah. And that and I think that, that he should have had one. Absolutely. There's a great scene in the movie. The movie's so good. And there's a great scene in the movie where 
you know, he's, he's appealing this and everything. And this guy says, well, what if you win? Do you, are you free? And Gideon says, you know, I'm not sure yet. And the guy says, well, what if you did it? And Gideon's like, well, I didn't do it. And the guy's like, but what about me? <laughs> <laughs> it's like so obvious that he had actually committed his crime, but he didn't have a lawyer. Funny. It was really cute. Yeah. All right. What about me? So Clarence, Gr- Clarence Earl Gideon is in prison. And he thinks it's super unfair that he could get a five-year prison sentence and a this trial. Super over- unfair. <laughs> super unfair. Hey, what these are my words. Is. These are my words. All right. Uh, that he could get a five-year sentence in a trial where he didn't even have a lawyer. So he submits a habeas corpus petition to the Florida Appellate and Florida Supreme Court, which, as you well know, says, uh, let no, me out I... of jail. Let me out of jail. This is unfair. Yes, totally denied. <laughs> Just denied. Oh yeah. So he decides to submit a writ of certiorari petition to the United States Supreme Court, which Google tells me means I would like you to review my case and the lower court will send you all the materials and you can review it and decide if it was right. I'm, you know, I am not a legal expert, but that's my understanding of a writ of certiorari. That's exactly what it is. Yes. Okay. So this is so great. He writes the petition in pencil on jailhouse stationery. Yeah. And he asks the Supreme Court to review his case because he believes he should have been provided a lawyer. And the Supreme Court agrees to review the case in 1963. So it's two years later. It's about a year and a half later. And they assign a lawyer named Abe Fortas to represent Gideon. And he's kind of a badass he ends up being he's a future supreme court justice so they didn't go get him like some schmo off the street who just got his jd some drunk <laughs> some wake drunk. up charlie <laughs> we got a big one on. for you <laughs> read this <laughs> tell us what you think oh. so the case goes to the supreme court and it's called gideon v wainwright because at the time of the hearing florida department of corrections was headed by Louis Wainwright. And then, okay, you alluded to this before. The case had some relevant legal precedent. Uh, In Powell v. Alabama in 1932, that is the um, Scottsboro Boys case where a group of men, I think nine young men, were accused of murdering or raping a couple of women. Okay. Okay. So in 1932, in Powell v. Alabama, the Supreme Court determined that the state was required to provide defense counsel, but they limited their decision to capital offenses because the Powell case was a capital offense. So they just didn't even talk about other types of trials. They didn't exclude them, but they didn't include them. So that was 1932. In 1942, Betts v. Brady happened. And that's the case that you were talking about before. Okay. Where the Supreme Court decided in that case that refusing counsel to an indigent man did not violate the Sixth Amendment unless there were special circumstances, such as if the defendant was illiterate or if their mental abilities prevented them from understanding what was happening. So 
to me, that is a, that is directly applicable to Gideon. He was not illiterate. He understood what was happening. And Betsy Brady clearly said that the state could refuse counsel. So it's interesting to me that the Supreme Court even took the case because they had ruled on this exact situation. And by taking the case, they were considering overruling Betts. Well, you know, who was the, who was the, um, who was the, the Grand Poobah? Was it Warren? I think it was Warren, yeah. The Warren court went through and just wrecked everything. They were just like, yeah. let's do it. I mean, like, let's do if we, it. If we looked up Warren, like, I should know this off the back, top of my head and the back, like the back of my hand, but like you look up Warren and he's got all tons of huge, big decisions. Okay. I think he was the board versus Brown of education Supreme court judge. Yeah. Um, lots of big yep. ones. Miranda, I think he was the Miranda judge. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Actually these happened like within a month of each other, I think a year. Wow. I mean, these two cases came down back to back. So Warren was, was a great Supreme court justice. All right. Yeah. Right on Warren. Yeah. Okay. So Abe Fortas came in to argue for um, Gideon and he crushed it. He focused to your earlier point. He focused on the 14th amendment. Okay. On the fact that due process includes the right to have counsel and the 14th amendment. The 14th Amendment said that all of these due process, I think it said a bunch of stuff. And I think part of it was that these due process rights applied to the states so that you didn't expect to be treated differently in different states. Yeah, there's definitely specific language like I should know, but like certain rights that rise to some level just being a fundamental right. Yep. A lot of it comes down to equal protection. Mm -hmm. And so this is what Abe Fortas really honed in on. He said, look, our criminal justice system is adversarial in nature. So by definition, the prosecution and the defense both work to present the best possible case and then let an impartial third party decide that third party being a judge or jury. So he made such an incredible argument where he said Clarence Darrow, who was one of the best lawyers of their time, Clarence Darrow was accused of a crime. And the first thing he did was acquire counsel. And he says to the Supreme Court justices, if Clarence Darrow needs an attorney, how could anybody argue that anyone else doesn't? Oh, my God, that is I, I didn't I get I didn't read I didn't read that. Uh, see that? Isn't that great? So where'd you get that from? That's from the arguments, I guess. From the movie. From the movie. Oh. No, I've actually no, no, no. I've read that. I I have read that he makes that argument, and also that either Warren or Black, because I know Black wrote the majority. Mm-hmm. So it was either Warren or Black, but one of them said it was one of the best arguments they'd ever heard. I'm gonna it's like an a, check that out. That sounds it's like an applause <laughs> moment right there, right? That sounds super cool. Yeah. But for real, like, I mean, that's that that should have just been his whole thing. Darrow had an attorney, like, gone. Yeah. That guy needs an attorney. Exactly. Mm. All right. So, uh, you know, he, uh, what's his name? Fortis. Fortis was amazing. Supreme Court justices unanimously, they're like, yes, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to have the assistance of counsel for their defense. Yeah. 
Therefore, Gideon's conviction was unconstitutional. The court concluded that the presence of defense counsel is, quote, fundamental and essential to fair trials in the United States. Justice Black stated, and this goes back to the Clarence Darrow thing, that the government hires lawyers to prosecute and defendants who have money hire lawyers to defend are the strongest indications of the widespread belief that lawyers in criminal courts are necessities, not luxuries. Absolutely. And then Robert, Robert Kennedy was the attorney general and he had this nice statement where he said, if an obscure Florida convict named Clarence Earl Gideon had not sat down in prison with a pencil and paper to write a letter to the Supreme Court, and if the Supreme Court had not taken the trouble to look at the merits in that one crude petition among all the bundles of mail it must receive every day, the vast machinery of American law would have gone on functioning undisturbed. But Gideon did write that letter. The court did look into his case. I'm not going to read the rest because it's a spoiler. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, okay. Supreme Court justices, badasses like Warren and Black are saying, what, what was the quote? It's fi- fundamental and essential to fair trials, having a defense counsel. So what does that say about people who judge defense lawyers? Well, you know. Don't get emotional. <laughs> I think that uh, I mean I doubt it's something many people really sit around thinking about much, you know, unless they're actively involved in some sort of litigation. Certainly, the, the, your the, the first reaction it seems when pe- people learn that's what I am is to want to ask a question like that. How do you do it? How do you represent guilty people during a deposition? I've had I've had people say literally like I don't know how you do what you do. Um, a child protection team advocate for a child who'd allegedly been touched inappropriately. I was asking her uh, about a series of things. I'm, I'm sure, but I, I led up to. I was trying to figure out, like, have you ever thought a child was lying? You believe everything that every child tells you, and she was like, "Yes." So I wrapped up the questions and kind of let her go. So some people are horrified by it. Um, what I do, especially like people like her who work in an industry in the, in, in a situation like she's works for something called the child protection team who deal with children who have been molested all the time. And so a lot of them probably actually have been, you know, some of them haven't been, I mean, that's just the way anything is. There's not, somebody's always not telling the truth somewhere. So they get through. So when you have someone who believes hundred percent of everything, every child tells them, which is what that woman told me, it's room for, you know, gives me a little bit of a, pause well it just it makes you the fact that she believes everything that everyone says then you understand why she wouldn't understand why you do what you do because you're looking for that one person who's been wrongly accused and to her that doesn't make sense because she's not she's not it sounds like she's not open to that being an option absolutely like she is not open to that being an option and you know, there's a million reasons why somebody might not want to represent themselves, even if they are actually intelligent. For example, Clarence Darrow. But I, I remember uh, when I was first moving up into serious cases, and we were talking about how you represent sex cases, and you're just like, oh my God, it's horrifying to be going in front of a jury and picking a jury and talking about these things. And oh my God, everybody must hate me, etc. And some old seasoned attorney, I remember 
said to us that in her experience and some other, everyone agreed that uh, people love watching a defense attorney fighting hard for his or her client. You know, if you're a savvy defense attorney going in there and putting the business to the state, every, everybody does seem to like that. So I think at the end of the day, people do, to some extent, you know, respect it. But there's a different mindset that goes into doing it. It's definitely not for everybody. Some people do it just for the money. Like some people will be state attorneys for a while, then they'll go into private practice and they just start, mm -hmm. you know, and they're just pushing through the numbers. Some people become defense attorneys and they kind of change a little bit. They start realizing, wow, these people really are getting railroaded. Um, some people mm -hmm. never consider being a state attorney. Uh, like you. And I really wouldn't, you know, I mean, yeah. like outside of like some financial reward, like just being a state attorney. Just, well, first of all, you have to support the death penalty. And I just kind of have a problem with that. And that is that Florida is well, does Florida have the death penalty? Florida has the death penalty. Oh, I would. Yeah, that would be hard. There have been so many people found not guilty after having been executed that I just, mm -hmm. you know, just lock them up because everybody, everybody who's about to die would rather stay alive even if you're just being stuck in prison for the rest of your life. But, you know, th this is sort of when you get into that, what, what, what was the phrase? Um, it's better to set 12 guilty men free than to have one innocent man be incarcerated. Yeah. Up that yeah. death penalty. You're not talking about setting people free. You're talking about just giving people life in prison. I think it's way better to have 12 dudes who did it. These guys are on the death penalty. I think it's better to have 12 of those guys just do life than to risk having one guy who one of them be on the death on death row. Yeah. Actually get executed. To me, that's just being executed. Sitting sitting in prison for life is just uh, is is just is is horrible too. Like yeah, you know, to, to 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 sit there and be sucked through the system like a piece of trash floating down the stream until you're actually executed, sat in a chamber with needles put in you and killed and you didn't do it. Uh, it's unthinkable. I just can't even imagine that. I mean, I just, it just, it, to me, so that's one thing, that's one big, that's my main, my mainest, most biggest problem, I think, is that. But the fact that here in the real world, there's, there, there are mistakes and people are posthumously found not guilty, I just cannot get behind that machine. Therefore, I would never work for the state attorney's office. Definitely. Yeah. In a state where there was death penalty, for sure. Yeah. No, it's super tragic. Yeah. All right. So let's lift this thing up. All right. So uh, Gideon, yay, right? His conviction is overturned. He's pumped. He feels like he should go free. And the government's like, mm, no. Retrial, right? <laughs> yeah. We could try you again. And so he fights tooth and nail to try to uh, convince people that that's double jeopardy. But he did not, in fact, have a law degree and he was schooled. Uh, that that was not double jeopardy. I think if you if you are found not guilty, you can't be tried again, no matter what an appellate court says. But if you're convicted and an appellate court throws out the conviction, they can try again. Interestingly, though, after the Gideon decision, 2,000 convicted individuals were freed in Florida, just released. And I'm not really sure why. The movie implied that availability of witnesses might have been a thing. Um, maybe the length of time that had gone by since they had been found guilty. Maybe the government just did, chose not to try those cases again. I'm not sure. But 2,000 people went free just in Florida. 
after Gideon. All right. So August 5th, 1963, two years after his first trial, almost to the day, Gideon is again at the defense table, but this time he's joined by W. Fred Turner Esquire. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I love this guy. Uh, so here's a little bit more from the transcript because I love this. Um, okay. Adams is one of the lawyers for the prosecution this time. And I don't remember what Turner, Turner was, had a witness on the stand and he was uh, accused of leading the witness. All right. So Adams, if the court please, I object. He's just trying to put words in the witness's mouth. Judge, he's talking about leading the witness. Turner, well, if this ain't cross-examination, there ain't a cow in Texas. <laughs> Judge, he's talking about leading the witness. That is what he's objecting to. Turner, I can lead him, Your Honor. On cross-examination, I can lead him all over the lot. Adams, you can't put words in his mouth, though, Mr. Turner. Turner, I sure can. Does the court want to hear some law on that? God Judge. Yes. Judge, proceed with your examination. Oh, God, yes. I like that guy. Yeah, would the court like to hear some law? Oh, yes. So it just really calls out like how different it is just to have someone there who's not intimidated, who knows the rules, understands the law, and can present your best case. Yeah, that's great. I like that guy. Like I've, I've, I've said to myself before, like, you never know when you're just going to have to show up for court one day and you're going to get stymied because you don't have case law that says the sun rises in the east. You know, mm -hmm. you're like, judge everybody. Can we stipulate that? Yeah. Like, but we know that. Like, yeah, like that's like every day it happens in here. You know, they're just like, well, the state's like, not today. I'm new. Like it's a it I'm new. All right. So the retrial was similar to the original trial except the defense lawyer knew what he was doing. He highlighted inconsistencies in testimony. Now, remember, the um, prosecution only called two witnesses, an eyewitness and then the bar manager who basically just said my bar was broken into. So really kind of one witness, right? And the defense attorney did a fantastic job um, making you question whether the eyewitness could really have seen through the darkened pool hall windows at five o'clock in the morning, um, there was an internal partition and he called into question whether that part partition would have blocked his view of the rear door from where he was standing. Um, and then the eyewitness also had a criminal history of theft. And yet it didn't seem like the police ever considered him a suspect. He said Gideon did it and they just went running off to arrest Gideon. So somebody saw him in the broken in into building and he had change in his pockets. And that's all they had. Uh, so this time, Gideon was acquitted after one hour of deliberation. Nice. He was now a free man. His story was not a super happy one. He was a drunk and he was a drifter. And uh, he, he married for the fifth time. Oh, God. Fifth time is probably, probably going to get it right this time. And then Ooh, he died. Lucky of, lady. <laughs> and then he died of cancer in 1972, which is less than 10 years later. So he had a rough life, you know, start to finish. 
but he just had such a monumental impact it's amazing on jurisprudence with his pencil written letter from jail and now everybody's got an attorney i just wanted to kind of wrap up with like a few of my thoughts and i'm sure you have some to add to this but why become a defense lawyer and I've, I've heard people list a bunch of different reasons, um, including because it's a constitutional right, including because our system is designed to have a case presented by both sides before a jury decides on a verdict. But to, to what you were talking about earlier, we know there are thousands of people who are wrongly incarcerated. And the Innocence Project has saved over 200 people from wrongful incarceration. We know many others get overcharged or oversentenced because they don't have good representation. Mm -hmm. And it's just hard to imagine someone doing that without an advocate. And so a big, a big thing for me that I've learned from you is that advocating for someone doesn't mean you believe them. It, it doesn't mean you think they didn't do it or that if they did do it, that you would be okay with that. It just means that until a judge or jury decides that the facts make them guilty, you present their case as though they were innocent. Uh, I remember uh, this was back in juvenile court. An attorney got in trouble once. I, I forget the, all the particulars about it, but the takeaway was we don't represent the client's best interest. We represent what the client wants to do. And for, so what I like to make sure, this sounds silly, but it's true, is make sure you're competent to proceed, which means you are smart enough to be able to assist yourself through the legal system, then I let you make your decisions, you know, so because what might be best for you would be to go to prison, you know, I mean, like for real, especially as a juvenile, what might be best for you in your best interest might be to be adjudicated guilty and go to a program for six months to a, to a year. That might be what's in your best interest, in my opinion. But see, that doesn't matter. But what I represent is what you want. And what you want is to be found not guilty and to be put back out onto the street. You know, The job is, to the extent that you can do it without facilitating crime, is to represent you know, what people want and not, what, not what, what's actually in their best interest. The job is to be somebody's voice in, in the criminal justice system. I always ask people when, when I get started, what is it you want? It's kind of silly. It's a silly question sometimes, but sometimes it catches people off guard. But I'm like, I need to know, like, what do you want? I'll help you get there. Well, Tom, this has been amazing. Yeah, great. Say bye. Bye-bye.